All right. Well, I want to give y'all my welcome. Glad to see a bunch of new faces here. Uh, it's a very exciting time of year for sure. And so um, we want you to feel welcome here. Obviously, we're in love with Jesus, and we hope that's contagious. That's what we're about. That's what we're, we're up here for. Uh, Garrett mentioned it earlier, but I'm about to dive into uh, a new sermon series for us. So, studying the book of Ephesians. I think this will be great. We have in mind for you to hear from a, a lot of different people, as we've got eight sermons planned in, in the works for Ephesians. So, um, get in it with us. Read the book. Read it several times. We, um, you know, eight sermons on a, a small book like Ephesians may, may seem like a lot, and I guess on one hand it is, but certainly uh, we won't be able to dive into everything. Uh, the, the Bible is pretty amazing, if you haven't figured that out yet. And, and God wants to reveal himself to you through his word again and again. We'll actually see that in, in the first chapter today, his desire for our continued uh, revelation and revealing and what he has for us. And so uh, kind of the usual disclaimer there, if we don't hit your favorite part, uh, that's our bad, but we'll get back to it eventually. It'll be good. Um, you know, the, the call to, to study is something that I like to throw out early and often. And I'll tell you, you know, for me, there's a, an awesome free resource out there. It's on the Bible Project's website. They have a classroom uh, edition of what they do, which is basically uh, seminary-level courses they give for free. It's out of control. And, and definitely a lot of you know, what I learned and will be sharing here today uh, came from there. And so I feel like I got to give them props. But it's just a wonderful resource. And no one has perfect theology, I'm sure. But dive in with us and, and let's dig deep together. So I do want to intro the book uh, as best I can pretty shortly. And I want to talk through chapter one. So uh, one of those sermons, I'm going to try and get a lot done here today. But Ephesians. So, this is a letter in our New Testament uh, written by Paul to uh, a church in Ephesus. Or is it? So, look at, look at verse 1. <laughs> yeah, I'm throwing you a curveball right away. Um, it opens like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. But you'll notice in uh, the modern translations, what you're very likely looking at, there's a footnote right next to in Ephesus. And if you take that down to the page, you'll see that the, the committee translators are, are calling out that the earliest manuscripts of this letter don't have in Ephesus. And um, it's through that and a couple verses sprinkled in, like 115, chapter 3, verse 2, where it becomes evident that, that Paul may not know these people directly. And from Acts chapter 19 and 20, we know he knows Ephesus very well. All that to say, this is very likely a circular letter uh, that, that Paul wrote, but was intended to pass around several churches in Asia Minor. Uh, Ephesus being the most prominent city and, and church in the area uh, likely became known for, for its home base. But uh, that's important because this does read uh, a little different from other letters that we see in the New Testament. 
There's no uh, specific church or, or problem being addressed, which is often the occasion for the other letters in the New Testament. And it ends up reading much more like a sermon. Actually, it's probably a better sermon than you'll hear from me today. Um, maybe I should just read it. But Paul is laying out the gospel and shedding light on this, the cosmic significance of the gospel. And, you know, there's just powerful themes that all come together in this real short letter that it's clear it's meant for all of us to be a real grounding and foundation for our our faith and and understanding and what God has been up to throughout the, the whole story. And so we see you know, Jesus being above all things in heaven and on earth. He's bringing about this new humanity that breaks down all previous dividing lines and hostility and ultimately displays God's manifold wisdom uh, and that through the church, somehow that would be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And just on and on, he sort of waxes poetic on how great this gospel is and how powerful um, what, what God has done through Jesus. The, uh, the structure of the book is actually pretty convenient. Uh, there's six chapters, and it breaks in half very cleanly. Chapters one through three are a, a theological section, uh, breaking down this mystery that God has revealed through Christ. And, and if I can't say, we won't dive too into it, but it is very carefully put together. And you get just in the first half, chapters 1 and 3, at the beginning and the end, some of the most beautiful prayers we see in Scripture that sort of bookend this section. And then the the sections in the middle sort of work together towards this climax in chapter 2, 19 through 22-ish, where the new humanity in Christ is built up on Christ, the cornerstone, to be a holy temple where the Spirit of God dwells. And you see this incredible picture that really is the conclusion um, of the entire biblical story, the entire redemptive plan that God set in motion way back in Genesis 12 with Abraham. You know, and I call that out because it's important to know that biblical backstory because that is undoubtedly what Paul has in mind when he is uh, getting into the, the early stages of this letter and what we're about to read. And so just a, a little bit of let's remember that together. Um, you know, God enacted this redemption plan in Genesis 12. And so it comes out of the, the whole beginning where he creates us and it's good and awesome, but, but we screw it up. And, and there's this spiral of, of sin and violence and bloodshed. And, you know, one of the climaxes is, is in Genesis 11 where we get the Tower of Babylon. And humanity is united without God to to build a monument to themselves, to reach to the heavens and make a name for themselves. And God says, "This, this is not good. This can't go on if they're to be saved. And so he scatters humanity there. And he confuses their language. And that's, that's the Tower of Babylon story. And it's out of that scattering that he chooses Abraham. And he gives that great promise in Genesis 12 where he's going to make Abraham a great nation, and that's Israel, and he's going to bless all the peoples of the earth through him, through Israel. And so 
this mystery revealed in Ephesians that Paul can't stop talking about is this, that everything finally has opportunity to unite under Christ. And what was at one point a single choosing, a single nation, you know, through the whole story ultimately focused on Jesus himself, the Messiah, is now open to divide every line of hostility and finally bless all peoples of the earth. And so we we need to have that in mind as we go. And so I I went on a little long there. We're still talking about structure. That's chapters 1 through 3. The second half, chapter 4 through 6, is one of those just classic, like, therefore moments. And he says, in light of all of that, live like this. And we get three chapters of just beautiful, practical instructions on how this should play out in our community, in our churches, in our relationships. Um, and and it, he really does redefine every relationship and puts it in the light of what Christ has done and what he wants to do through us. So, chapters 1 and 3, we're waxing poetic on these theological mysteries. 4 through 6, we're getting practical. What does it mean? What does it matter? Live like this. And so the themes that we'll see pop up in here, the first and foremost is unity in Christ. Paul is after this. Christ is after this. It really echoes Jesus' own prayer in John 17. Seemingly the most important thing in this new humanity that God wants to create among us is unity. And so it's no surprise that the spiritual forces of evil pound so hard against that. All things are held together in Christ. Christians need to consciously resist spiritual forces of evil that seek to divide them. He'll get into the whole armor of God thing and protecting ourselves against the spiritual forces of evil as he concludes in chapter 6. And in the church, God has created one unified people. And so what used to be hostile towards one another has to be unified. And uh, therefore, every single relationship is redefined. And so we'll take, we'll take some weeks to dive into that and, and play that out and, and follow it and obey it as best we can in our little church here. So, very quick intro because I want to spend a good amount of time here in, in chapter 1. So, we're going to read through the first half. Read it with me. This is Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 3 and I'm going to read through verse 14. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment. And it's this, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. Under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, 
in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, I, I heard it said you get kind of a greatest hits of all the, the Christianese we like to celebrate. All the blessing, all the redemption, all the forgiveness. Uh, we're chosen, we're predestined. You know, he's lavishing on us these blessings. And not just some blessings, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Like, this is, this is amazing. Like, first and foremost, thank God, that sounds like a great deal he has in store for us. And if nothing else, let's be reminded about all the good things that he wants to give us, all the good ways that he wants to bless us. But I want to point out one thing about how we read the Bible, because I think it's important for this first chapter. But we can often make uh, a mistake when reading the Bible. I think it's a very common mistake, and it's just the natural thing to do. But that mistake is this. We immediately assume that the author is talking directly to us or directly about us. And it's a, it's a common pitfall because it, it makes some sense. In, in the big picture, the Word of God is for us and preserved and written and, and kept for us and for our benefit to reveal you know, His character and His work. Um, and so it, it's natural that we want to jump in and, and we see all the us and the we. And yeah, Paul's talking to this church right now. Um, that's not always the case. You know, here in chapter 1 specifically, what we just read, it can be hard because uh, there is a sense where we absolutely do share in all those blessings that he's calling out in, in most of, of what we just read. But... Paul is doing something very specific with, with this passage. And it has to do with all the, the us and we phrases versus the, the you phrases. And he's talking to two different distinct groups of people here about two different distinct groups of people. And, and just to put it plainly, in the opening, the us and the we is Israel. It's the original chosen people of God. And it's, it's where Paul comes from. He is an Israelite. And it turns in verse 13, finally, to say, now you. And here he is opening it to the, the bulk of his audience in Asia Minor here, the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, uh, where, where we would be included. And so this is crucial because his main point is the bringing together of these two groups. And that can be hard for us to realize sometimes because we're so removed from that reality. But think of the worst kind of divisions in our country here today. You know, they're uh, no greater than the kind of hostility that Jews and Gentiles had against one another in this time. This new humanity was insane from a, a Jewish person perspective or a, a Gentile perspective, that we would get along and do life together made no sense. And so he is deep 
in that overarching story of the Bible and God's original choosing of Israel. And he's explaining how that blessing for them is finally being opened up to everyone else through Christ. And so when we read this, it's important that we tap into that, that source material, the, the Old Testament there, and understand what, what Paul is after. You know, he uses the words chosen and, and predestined uh, several times in this passage. And this is often a topic that's just easiest to skip because predestination is hard to understand. Um, but when you realize um, the setting and what he's saying in this light, you realize that when he is referring to chosen and predestined, it's all in the us and we category. He's talking about Israel in this setting. Not that the Bible doesn't speak more directly to the, the predestination of our individual souls perhaps elsewhere, but that's not what Paul is doing here. And so that's just a, an example. We bring so much of our own personal upbringing and baggage to the text that is crucial to sort of leave aside and try as best we can to hear this exactly how the original author intended. And so... These words, it's not about you and me in the sense of God choosing me before the creation of the world to either go to the good place or the bad place when I die. That can be an important question. That is not what Paul's doing here. The logic of biblical election is God choosing one to be the vehicle for his blessing to again reach the many. That's what he does through Israel. There's a sort of a choosing within a a chosen as he gets to David and his family and his line. Ultimately, all that focuses in on the Messiah, Christ himself. And we see that, you know, Christ is the chosen one. He is the elect. And, you know, verse 13, when it turns to you, he he informs us how we can be a part of, of this chosen And he says, you were included in Christ when you heard the message and when you believed. And so, if you're in Christ through faith, you are elect. I certainly believe that God dignifies and gives us the choice to follow him and that he wants everyone to make that choice to follow him. But... This is just one example to try and point us towards uh, a more like responsible and, and thoughtful way to read through the scripture. Let's keep reading, though. I want to add the second half, and then we'll sort of pull some points from the whole thing. So in chapter 1, verse 15, picking up right where we left off, Paul says, For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. 
far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What an epic prayer. Um, you know, if nothing else, this is certainly a, a good example of, of how to pray and what to pray for. We should certainly, uh, you know, pray for each other in this way, pray for our church in this way, pray for the, the capital C church uh, across the world. Um, you know, I want to focus in on the, the heart of what he, he's praying for. That God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened. You know, I want to spend some time thinking about reality. Because I think we can often struggle with reality. What, what even is real in, in a certain situation or, or a certain time? You know, we can often perceive that our existence is, is somehow different than the one that God is here revealing to us or trying to, to reveal to us. And so, you know, maybe you've thought before that, that you have no chance for redemption. You know, this is one of the, the saddest things that can come up in ministry from time to time, where people are convinced they are unforgivable. And they create this reality in, in their thinking, in their mind, that whatever they've done is just too bad. And they've got no chance. And so they've given up, in a way, and can't trust in God's love and can't trust in other people trying to love them. And that is just the, the ultimate sadness and... Um, very real pain and, and heartache, and you've you got to work through that. We can all lean that direction sometimes. And so maybe you can understand some of those feelings. But the reality found up above here in chapter 1 is that in Him we do have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sins. And not just a little bit. He says, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Brandon was talking about grace with the communion deal. This is how God chooses to initiate with us. I mentioned the new covenant, you know, prophecy in Jeremiah 31 last week. The plan that he cho chose to set forth that would enable our hearts to soften and change and, and come to him was to lead with forgiveness to decide to not remember our sins anymore and to give us that grace free. And so the reality is that that grace is there waiting for you, overflowing, and you need to accept it. You need to jump on it. And, and may that grace then flow out from us to others around us that are surely feeling some of those I'm too bad, or I'm unforgivable thoughts. You know, another example, maybe you think the world will come crumbling down if 
your political party isn't in power, or your ideology isn't winning, or whatever hot button I want to try and push here. Um, The reality is that Christ is seated far above all rule and authority. He's seated far above every power and dominion, every name that is invoked. He's seated far above not only them now, in the present age, but also in the age to come. There is nothing but Christ ruling. And so everything else has to come under that lordship. And what a weight to be lifted off our shoulders when, when we can realize that and recognize the reality that he is above all and in all. And certainly that can seem confusing at times because we live in this now and not yet merging of, of those two ages because sin and death get plenty of rule and reign here and now, and we experience all sorts of hurt and heartache and the, the powers of evil. And so there is more to come that will ultimately kick all of that to the curb. But he is at the right hand of God now, ruling. And so every ideology, every effort, any person or people that is vying for your allegiance has to be put under the reality that Christ is really the one in charge. Another example, you know, maybe you think that you have a certain relationship that's beyond saving. There's just no way to, to reconcile what's gone on. You know, the reality here is that Jesus is our peace and that he's torn down every dividing wall of hostility. And the same forgiveness we receive from God, we have to pour out to those that have hurt us. And certainly there is truth that God honors the dignity of that other person's decisions and they may choose not to reconcile. But the reality is that on your behalf, you have grace that's been lavished on you for the purpose of giving out. And there is no relationship that God can't heal for you. Maybe you have in mind um, a particular group of people or specific individuals that, that you sort of define as your enemy, that you know is against you. You know, maybe just some sort of, I don't know, personal nemesis you got walking around. Um, we can feel opposed from all sorts of, of different angles, and we can point our our language of they're my enemy or they're my uh, opponent uh, in all sorts of various directions. And that starts to mess with our perception of reality because the truth is in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood but the spiritual forces of evil. And so you're not against a, a person and you need to recognize that that enemy of yours is in need of grace, just like you are, and that you're far closer to them uh, than you are to God. 
And so let's see the enemy for, for who it is and live in the reality that, that Christ has the ultimate authority. You know, maybe you long to, to just know God more. You long to, to hear from Him. But you're convinced He is far off. You're convinced that um, He's not into that with you for now. The reality is that heaven and earth are overlapping realms. You know, we see this in the beginning of the biblical story. We see points where it becomes obvious throughout. You know, we've experienced some of that here and now. And certainly sin has messed that up, but it's not that somehow we kicked God out. What's happened is that we've become blind. We can no longer see reality as it actually is. God is not far off. Your perception is is far off. It's not that that he up and left. You're, You're blind to his presence. It's not that he should have to shout in order for us to hear him. We have to learn again how to listen for his voice. And he says that his sheep will know his voice. You know, this revealing of, of truth that Paul is after is so significant because he wants us to see ourselves as seated with Christ at the right hand of God now. You know, he says that in the past tense. You were seated at the right hand of God with Christ. You know, we, we let too much of our are just modern understandings of whatever, physics, you, you fill in the blank. Um, our, our upbringing about whatever tradition and how often God speaks how or to who. And sometimes we just give up on the type of relationship that I think he wants with us. And so the challenge here is to see that the invitation is open now. And that he wants to relate with you here and now. And he wants to, to interact with you and direct you and lead your steps. And he wants you to, to hear his voice. And so the, the prayer that um, he prays here is that the eyes of our hearts would be opened. It's that song uh, we wrapped up the, the singing time with today. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. You know, to see him high and lifted up. That's to see reality. To see the world as it actually is today, right now, is to see Christ high and lifted up at the right hand of God. And so our efforts should be to, to point our thoughts and our thinking to that every day. You know, like we do with communion and try to reset ourselves, you know, weekly here. The, the same choice is before us every, every day we wake up. And whether we're going to believe um, you know, the reality that Ephesians is trying to lay out for us, or if we're going to let the uh, opposing voices in the world and, and around us uh, confuse us into thinking that this God stuff is for later. And so that would be my prayer uh, for us 
today, that He would open the eyes of our hearts. Uh, You see in verse 18 uh, what He wants the eyes of our hearts to see, and it's so that we would know hope. Hope should be a constant driving factor for how we live and what we go after, how we spend, how we consume. It should be driven by a, a hope in Christ coming again. It's so that we would know the richness of His glorious inheritance in His people, obviously tied to that hope. We have blessing on top of blessing ready for us now, and even more so later. And so may God continue to open our eyes to that hope so that we would be motivated to be with Him and follow Him and live like Him. And finally, it's to know the incomparably great power for us who believe. I don't think we often think of ourselves as powerful. But there is power in Christ that He wants us to tap into. And that power, we've talked about it several times, it looks very differently from what we usually think of as power. I may have just said power and who knows what's going through your mind. You know, all the MCU movies, you know, every, you know, some superhero flying out of the sky with lightning. Um, Power in Christ looks like dying on a cross. And we got to keep that in mind. But you have the power to follow him, to deny yourself and live like Jesus. And so I want to wrap up here and just pray this prayer again for us. And let this be um, yeah, something that, that we pray for ourselves ongoing throughout this series. Uh, certainly that it would impact us uh, individually and that, that God would, would move in each of us, to reveal to him, reveal himself to us again and again. Let's pray together. God, we give thanks. We remember you in our prayers, and we want to ask and keep asking that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we could know you better. I pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened and open in order that we may know the hope that you've called us to, that we would know the riches of your glorious inheritance that we have, and that we would know your incomparably great power for us who believe. It's that power, that same mighty strength which you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at your right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name, not only in the present age but the one to come. You placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. God, please open the eyes of our hearts. Amen. Amen. All right. Go in peace. Have a great day.